We're going to be in Romans chapter 8 for our sermon today. That text is printed in your bulletin, or if you have a Bible close by that you can grab to follow along. Uh, there are not many movies for ministers my age that work better in sermons than uh, Chariots of Fire. Uh, story of two British Olympic athletes, runners, uh, who had a great contrast in their lives, Harold Abrams and Eric Liddell. And um, Abrams was not a Christian and uh, ran, he said, to validate his life. He said, when the gun goes off, I have 10 seconds in which to justify my existence. 10 seconds in which to justify my existence. And then Eric Liddell, who was a very strong Christian, uh, also a runner, whose, uh, whose sister thought that he should be giving his attention to preparations for the mission field rather than to his running. He said uh, to her, Jenny, don't fret yourself. I believe God made me for a purpose. He made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. 10 seconds to justify my existence or when I run, I feel his pleasure. Which one of those more accurately describes your thinking about your relationship to God, that you have a trial before you by which to justify your existence or uh, living a life where you feel the actual pleasure of God on you. If you answered B, the joy that you feel with the pleasure of God on you, then you're an exceptional Christian, I would say, because most of us live most of the time in pretty deep discouragement, if not in self-loathing. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the faith, our confession of sin earlier may have sounded uh, neurotic to you, may have sounded like these people just have a terrible self-esteem. And, you know, that could be argued. But it could also be argued that we've looked in a really clear mirror in God's law and has seen what it means to be a rebellious, betraying creature of God, and that we have a heightened sense of our brokenness because of having looked at the beauty of Jesus Christ and the beauty of the law of God. And because of that brokenness um, and the weight that that places on our consciences, Romans 8 has become a very delightful chapter for many Christians. It's a favorite chapter of lots of Christians, I assume. Uh, not because as some people approach Romans 8, not because it gives us the key and instruction so that we can get our act together and behave better so that God can finally like us more. It does not teach that but it's beloved rightly because of the freedom and assurance that's given uh, of God's love to people like us, even though we are still sinful. Assurance of God's love in the midst of a life in which we are still sinful and rebellious. So we're gonna try to talk about Romans 8 this week and in the coming weeks, Lord willing, uh, to feel the difference between uh, living the Christian life to try to justify our existence and living the Christian life experiencing the pleasure of God on us. So that's what we're going to think about. Let me pray for us, and then we'll hear Romans 8. 
Father, we ask that um, you would make the voice of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures louder in our hearts and minds than the voice of our consciences. Uh, we pray that you would let us believe your promises and trust your love because of what you've done for us in Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm. The scripture reading for today is Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Word of the Lord. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, why would anybody feel condemned? Right? <laughs> who, who would possibly feel condemned? Uh, Certainly anybody with a tender conscience who's ever read anything of God's law would feel condemned. Uh, the story about us in the Bible isn't great. Paul has gone on for chapters and chapters, emphasizing that the story about us is not great. And so we live with a lot of shame and often a lot of self-loathing and angst because we think, I'm not the person I want to be. The whole last chapter of Romans talked about this. I, I'm torn between who I think I should be and who I want to be and who I actually am, what I actually do. Uh, it's a dilemma for Christians, and we don't have a lot of places that we tend to go with that angst. Uh, one place we go with our angst and our guilt and our sense of feeling condemned is we go places that will numb us. You know, we turn to things that will uh, stop our emotions and stop our thoughts so that we don't have to think hard about our predicament. Uh, the other and even more popular place we turn with our angst and our guilty consciences is to the law. We turn to the law to try to help us, to try to fix what's wrong and broken with us. We make uh, rigorous resolutions. We uh, pursue a deeper discipline and seriousness in our obedient Christian lives. Uh, we uh, basically cry out to the law and say, please come help me. I need to be fixed. The way I am now is not okay. I need help. Law, come help me. And if we're worried about our children, we cry out to the law and say, Law, come help my children. Come fix them. Let me make the right kind of rules and the right kind of punishments and uh, the right kind of discipline in my home to fix my kids. And if my nation is distressing me morally, who could imagine that? We cry out to the law, law, please come fix my nation. Please, law, come uh, put us back in God's good favor by making us good. We appeal to the law to fix what's broken with us. A few years ago, Domino's Pizza uh, made a pretty great commercial. They had developed a voice-activated app for your smartphone called Dom. And you could just uh, speak to Dom and ask it to order a pizza for you, and it would. Supposedly pretty convenient, but their commercial was great because it had people asking Dom for other help. So someone's standing in the morning at the beach with a surfboard, and it's beautiful and idyllic, and the person says, Dom, 
cancel my morning meetings. And the app says, how about a pizza? And then that shows someone at a campfire looking up at the stars and says, Dom, where is Orion's belt? And the app says, it's light years from pizza. And then there's a guy at a bar fight breaking out and he says, Dom, how do I do karate? And the app says, I don't know, but I can get you a pizza, right? It's all it's good for. It's great as a voice ordering app to get a pizza, but that's all it can do for you. It's all it can do for you. My question is, what can the law do for you? What can you ask the law to do for you that it will do? Uh, and by law, I mean, you know, primarily the Torah, the Ten Commandments, but really other laws as well, you know, biblical principles for living, or the school policy manual, or uh, the seven habits of highly effective people, or the Constitution of the United States of America. Law, what can law do for you? What kind of help can you expect to get from the law? Because in the book of Romans, Paul's making a pretty huge point that you shouldn't expect to get much from the law. The law's not bad, but it just can't do very much for you. It can do very little of what you hope it will do for you. And so you don't need to trust it so much because it can't fix you and it can't make you good and it can't fix your kids and it can't fix your nation. It can't put you in good standing with God. It can't make God like you better. It can't alleviate your guilt. The law just can't do these things. And if you're ever going to have any hope of joy in a relationship with God or actual peace of conscience, which is supposed to be one of the benefits, right, of being a Christian, peace of conscience, if you're ever going to experience those things, then you must stop trusting in the law. You must stop trusting in the law. In verse 3, Paul says very clearly, God has done what the law could not do. God has done what the law could not do. So let's talk about the law a little bit. What, first of all, what can it do for you? What can it do for you? Uh, what, where's the pizza, right, that the law can get you? Uh, one is it can restrain your behavior a little bit. You know, if people are afraid of getting caught, sometimes they mitigate their behavior. Uh, you probably have experienced this in your car, right? But that's not a very important use of the law or one that the Bible emphasizes much at all. Uh, but there's a little bit of a restraint that can come from the threat of the law and of punishment. Uh, other thing the law can do, and the Bible talks a lot about this, is it can hold up a mirror to you to show you your true self. And um, that's not a good thing. You know, it's sort of like uh, the effect of high-definition television on actors and actresses. Now, uh, you know, every pore shows up, and when you look at God's law, every moral defect in you shows up uh, very clearly. It's distressing, but the point of it isn't just to beat you down and make you feel terrible. The point of it is to show you that you are unfixable and you need help like only Jesus can give you. You need a savior like Jesus, not just some good advice to help you become a better person. And so the law does that for us. It points us to our need of Jesus, which is great. And then for a Christian, uh, one who has been forgiven 
and accepted by God who will never be condemned, as this passage says, then the law can become useful to us, to teach us. It's a picture of you know, what's a beautiful human life look like? What is a rich uh, human life that fulfills its potential in love to God and love to other people? What would that look like? Well, it looks like God's law. And so the law, having been defanged by Jesus and unable to condemn us anymore, uh, becomes useful to us in the Christian life. It can even become beautiful to us in the Christian life. It's kind of like uh, the, uh, the abominable snow monster in the Rudolph Christmas cartoon, you know, that was this big threat until Herbie pulled the monster's teeth out. And once the monster's teeth were gone, the monster actually became kind of helpful. It could put the star on top of the Christmas tree, right? Um, and the law kind of functions like that for us. It's been defanged by Jesus Christ, and now it actually can be helpful to us and, and useful and encouraging to us and can be of some help. But there are things it can't do. And it's very important for us to be clear about what the law cannot do so that we don't try to ask it to do those things. And the first thing that the law can't do is change you. The law has no power to change you. The law could not do uh, because it's weakened by our uh, corrupt nature. The law could not fix us. The law could not reconcile us to God, he says in verse 3. Um, Law, make me love and trust God and never be envious or selfish anymore. Law can get you a pizza, right? The law cannot make you love God from your heart. It cannot make you love your neighbor from your heart. It cannot make you less selfish or less envious or less proud. It can't do that. It's good advice. It's not wrong. It just isn't helpful. We need good news, not just good advice. This is what Philip Yancey says about the law. Very helpfully. Laws can shut down stores on Sunday, but can't compel worship. They can arrest and punish KKK murderers, but cannot cure their hatred, much less teach them to love. You can pass laws making divorce more difficult, but cannot force husbands to love their wives. It can subsidize the poor, but it can't force the rich to show compassion to them. It can ban adultery, but not lust, theft, but not covetousness, cheating, but not pride. It can encourage virtue, but not holiness. The law is good advice, but we need more than good advice, and we have more than good advice, and having good news, we must not settle for good advice. We must not settle for good advice. Um, the law can't change you. Uh, if you believe that, it would transform the way you think about parenting. It would transform the way you think about obedience in your life. It would transform the way you think about politics on a lot of levels, I feel sure. The law just does not have the power to do those things that we ask from it. But the other thing the law can't do anymore, and this is the thrust of this passage, is that the law cannot condemn you. The law cannot condemn you any longer. It can't do it because the righteous requirement of the law, he says in verse 4, the verdict of the law has been fulfilled in us through what Jesus Christ has done. To put it in Old Testament uh, terms, the curses of the covenant that God threatened to his people if they were unfaithful have been borne by Jesus Christ instead of us. The verdict has been rendered 
Jesus Christ has suffered in our place, and now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law cannot condemn you any longer. You will never be condemned. Nothing that you have done will condemn you. Nothing that you can do will condemn you. That's a dramatic thing to say and believe. Um, very hard to believe. It's very hard to believe because the law will gaslight you. Uh, will come and accuse you and say, you're an awful person. Uh, you despise yourself. How much worse must God think about you? Your own conscience will beat you to death with the law and just dredge up all the shameful things that you have done and regrettable things that you have done. Uh, all of the thoughts and motives of your heart that you know that other people don't even know, that you're scared that people would know, your conscience knows them and beats you with them. And the Bible says the devil himself is the accuser of the brethren and that he piles on and fans the flames of our guilt and our sense of condemnation in our lives. Um, and Christians, in the face of these things, are meant to rely on the solid, rock-hard foundation of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We're not supposed to say, my conscience is wrong, or that the law is wrong, or for that matter, for the most part, that the devil is wrong. Uh, what we're supposed to say is, these offenses have been carried by Jesus Christ, and he no longer holds them against me. There's no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus now. That's how we're supposed to respond. In the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, early in his journey, the Christian comes to the uh, interpreter's house. It's kind of like a, a discipleship time for him as he begins his Christian life. And the interpreter shows him several rooms that are uh, spiritual analogies. In one room, he sees a uh, fireplace, which has a uh, pretty roaring fire going in it, but a man standing in front of the fire, throwing water on the fire, trying to douse it. But even though he's pouring a lot of water on the fire to douse it, the, the flames only get stronger and stay robust. And the interpreter asks Christian, do you know why this is happening? And he says, no. So he goes and he takes him around to the other side of this double-sided fireplace, and he shows another man there who's got oil, and he's pouring oil on the fire constantly. Uh, to keep it burning. And he says, the man in the front room was the devil, uh, pouring water on the fires of God's grace in our lives and our confidence that we're loved as a free gift. But the man in the back is Jesus Christ, pouring oil on the fire. In Romans 8, we would say, this is the Holy Spirit that he pours on us uh, so that despite the accusations of the devil or our conscience, the flames of his grace stay strong in us. And that's where our confidence has to be, in the truth, objectively, about what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now, we'll talk about the subjective assurance that we have as Christians later in Romans chapter 8. But right now, we're focused on the objective part that what Jesus has done for us has ended condemnation for Christians, and we no longer face it. And, uh, you know, I think this is, this is easier for some people to think about at the beginning of their Christian life to say that, you know, before I knew any better, before I was a Christian, you know, I did things that are regrettable, but then God was merciful to me and, and let me become a Christian and forgave my sins and brought me into his family. But 
now, now I know better. And now, um, you know, my sins and things, uh, I need more than grace. I need to get my act together um, because it's just unthankful for me to be sinning the way that I'm sinning. And um, I can't imagine that, um, you know, God's grace is enough to put me in a happy relationship with him now. You know, we sing songs about it. We sing songs like, only Jesus can do helpless sinners good. But we kind of mean people who aren't Christians yet when we say that. But what Romans 8 says is, that's a Christian song. Maybe way into the Christian life, you still sing, only Jesus can do helpless sinners good. We're still completely dependent on his mercy. As Christians, even if we've been Christians a long time, that's our only hope. Um, so, what do you do with a condemning conscience? You know, how are you supposed to react when you have a condemning conscience, like most Christians do a lot of the time? Because it really is our experience. You feel sure that um, there's no way I'm ever going to feel God's pleasure or feel pleasure in my relationship with Him until I get a lot better. Until I get a lot better, there's just no way for me to throw my head back like Eric Little and run absorbing the pleasure of God. I mean, that's just not going to happen. And he's certainly not going to use me in the lives of my friends and coworkers and family unless I get a lot better. Right? I mean, maybe not perfect, but just a lot better. If I were a lot better Christian, like some of the Christians around me seem to be, well, then maybe I could see... I could have joy with God or I could be used by him, but not me, not like I am. That's how we think. And you know you ought to be better and you're not wrong about that. And you know you're honestly not trying as hard to be good as you could try. Conscience ever say anything like that to you? Mine does kind of start to think of Jesus as like one of these really demanding uh, ball coaches who think they're going to inspire you uh, with their deep disapproval, right? Never can say an encouraging word, only thinking all the time, couldn't you have done a little bit better? Couldn't you have run a little bit faster? Uh, couldn't you have scored a little bit lower? Uh, the disapproval, you know, inspiration by disapproval is really not, as it turns out, Jesus's way of motivating us. Um, he motivates us the opposite way, that in the security of his love and of never being able to be condemned, never being able to lose his love or his favor or his smile, out of that love, we're inspired to obey him. But we try to manage our conscience otherwise. Uh, we think, you know, surely the law can help me feel better in my relationship with God. So one thing we do is double down on the law. I'm going to be even stricter and more disciplined and make more uh, rigorous resolutions uh, to try to be good. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to become harshly critical and judgmental of other people because I'm so serious about the law. And, you know, well, that creates churches and Christians who are really uh, very shallow when they're thinking about what it means to obey. And they just look at little salt, small surface sins that they can maybe fix and ignore the weighty matters of the law, of our, our selfishness and self-righteousness and envy, covetousness, all those kind of things that nobody ever has any hope of really fixing. 
Uh, so you can double down on the law and try to be real strict. And everybody has periods of their Christian life where they try that. You can have other approach to the law and your conscience says, I'm just going to lighten up. You know, don't take it so seriously. Grace means that God doesn't really care about sin. Probably, right? He doesn't mind. Um, be really hard to find anything in the Bible to try to support that argument. But we try to say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, a, everybody, no, I'm only human. You know, I got my problems. But, you know, I, you know, I, I try to be a decent person. I'm, you know, relative to my neighbors. I'm okay. And, you know, the Christian life is mostly about, you know, getting tips for, you know, living better. How can I be a better dad? You know, that, that kind of thing. That's probably, that's probably what Christianity is. I don't have to be so introspective all the time about uh, my behavior and attitudes. And uh, that doesn't work either. That just either makes you superficial um, or self-deluded. Right? So you could double down on the law. You could lighten up about the law, or you could do what a lot of us do, my favorite uh, personally, and that's lay low with regard to God. I'm going to lay low until I feel less guilty. I'm going to lay low until I'm better at this, and then I'll go to God. And of course, it never happens, right? You never do feel uh, innocent enough to go to God. So laying low, avoiding Him, trying to manage your conscience by uh, just uh, staying out of the light. And of course, this doesn't change anybody or help anybody. It certainly is no pathway to joy and the pleasure of God in our lives. If you use the law to try to manage your conscience, that you're doing what the theologians call basing your justification on your sanctification. I assume that needs a little explanation, but justification is being declared not guilty and righteous in God's eyes. That's what happens when you become a Christian. It's a complete free gift of God um, where you are, through no merit of your own, declared righteous in God's sight and completely forgiven of your sins because of what Jesus has done for you. Uh, all gift. Sanctification is the process of growing as a Christian uh, that lasts the rest of our lives. To use the law to manage your conscience is to take your, your progress and obedience in the Christian life and use that to reassure yourself about your right standing with God, uh, which is to get things completely backwards biblically. You base your progress in the Christian life on your secure justification. You don't base your secure justification on how much progress you've made in the Christian life, although we're all very tempted to do that, right? Um, but when you do that, you become a moralist and you turn the good advice of the Christian faith, I mean the good news of the Christian faith, into good advice. And you're misusing the law, asking something of it that it can never do. Um, you can't give assurance to a sinful Christian by saying, look at how good you are. That doesn't give us assurance. That just makes us feel insecure. Uh, Romans 8 is not about how to get your act together so you can finally feel assured before God. It is the declaration that you can have assurance before God because of what Jesus has done for you. And now you live out of that, which is a very different thing. When you trust in the law, it actually blocks change because it makes you necessarily superficial. You cannot deal with the deep issues of your heart if you're uh, intending to try to feel good before God by being such a good little boy or girl. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Um, we're going to talk about change in the Christian life this last 
phrase in verse 4 hints at that when he says that we're people who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that's a big theme in Romans 8 we're going to come back to next week. But even no matter what we say about how much change is possible and can be enjoyed now in the Christian life, in this life, change is always partial for a Christian. It's always only partial. And if you want to have assurance before God and joy before God, you're going to have to get it somehow in the midst of only partial obedience. How are you going to feel joy and peace in a relationship with God when you know you're only partially obedient at best? And that's the question that Paul is addressing here. He's saying your love and acceptance by God is never based on how much or how well you change. It never has been, it never will be based on how much or how well you change. And your joy and pleasure with God are not based on how good you are. It's not like if you're really great today, if you, you get up and read your Bible and pray and go around doing merciful deeds all day to people and saying and thinking only nice thoughts, the better you do that, the more joy you will feel as a Christian. Uh, that's not the scheme that's set up here. Being good is not the key to assurance in the Christian life. The key to assurance in the Christian life is what Jesus Christ has done for us. Um, there's a subjective part of that that the Holy Spirit brings that we're going to talk about. Um, but the huge leg on which our assurance is based in the Christian life is what Jesus Christ has done for us. He's defanged the law. There is no condemnation for us now because God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemned sin in the flesh. Everything he could have held against you, he's held against himself in the person of his son. That's the basis of our Christian assurance. Now, because of that, good advice is just only so useful to us, right? It's just only so useful to us because the good news means that absolutely anybody can be brought home to a relationship with God that's secure and that can never change. Absolutely anybody can have hope of the delight of God in their life because of what Jesus has done for us. The law can get you a pizza. Well, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would let us believe these things. You know how reluctant we are to believe them. You know how implausible they sound to us a lot of the time. But we pray that the loud promise of no condemnation would be louder in our minds than the devil or our conscience or the law. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.